Caucasians are strange people. Caucasians are strange, strange people. They put butter on their rice, sugar on their poi. That's all the words I know because I memorized it when I was eight, but I loved it. I like sugar on my poi. Activist class, I am your lovely host for the second week in a row. Um, I'm here with myself, Aretha, Chrissy, hi, Myra, hello, Dede, I'm a dog. Oh my god! <laughs> and our very highly esteemed guest, yeah, Doctor Jackie Vaughn. Oh my! I picked up a doctorate. <laughs> you did. You did. I was like, what? I missed that. See, not wow. just a community a member. Here, doctor community member. Guest, her beautiful baby daughter, Amani, who's joining us today as the first baby of this podcast. <laughs> we are very excited to have her and her thoughts. Um, yeah. Jackie is one of the dopest humans I know. She does hella work within reproductive justice, um, tax reform, just like really good at community organizing, like community engagement. Um, has taught me a shit ton about that, about Zoom calls. The queen <laughs> of the Zoom calls. Um, so I'm really excited to have you on the show this week um, to talk about a lot of the cool work you do within... Like the reproductive justice world, specifically in regards to prison abolition, because I know you're a brilliant abolitionist, so I'm excited to talk about that. Um, and, you know, we cannot forget that this is the month that the youth jail will be opening up, and so I think it's really timely for us to be talking about what's going on within the prisons in our, in our state um, as we figure out what our next moves are going to be for the jail in our city. So with that, let's get into it. Hi, Jackie. Hi. <laughs> let's start from the beginning. Where did you grow up? Okay. Well, I was born here in Seattle, and when I was about 10, we moved over to uh, Spokane, to the east side of the state, um, where I developed my race analysis because of how racist it was um, growing up. But I was just talking to somebody about this earlier today that... Um, my parents were both born and raised here in Seattle. Um, and when I was about seven, my dad um, went to prison. And so he um, was sent to Airway Heights, which is there in Spokane. And my mom's parents at the time were living in Spokane. So my mom was like, great, we'll just move to Spokane and then we'll be close to your dad. And then, you know, jokes on us that once you're in prison, they actually move you everywhere all the time. And so he was only there for a really brief amount of time and we ended up just getting stuck over there because it was so cheap mm-hmm. um it was really affordable to live in spokane but it was extremely racist mm-hmm. when did you move back to seattle then yeah so i moved back to seattle about three years ago mm-hmm. um to come work on a tax reform campaign and it was really interesting just to be, I feel like, immersed in the neoliberalism over here, especially working in quote-unquote progressive politics and thinking and seeing the work that was happening in community Mm -hmm. and then that up against the neoliberalism Mm -hmm. that, um, yes, plagues (laughs) Seattle. (laughs) Was that all in for Washington? Yes, it was. 
Yes, I was. Yes. Uh, Christy just wanted yeah. to throw every org on the bus. <laughs> I'm just like fuck the orgs. No, it was a right. it was a coalition, wasn't it? Or slightly, it was a coalition of different organizations, and they brought me on as quote unquote their racial equity organizer. <sighs> yes, and my thought process was, you know what? I'm just gonna take that job so that I can get paid to mm-hmm. like work in my community and mm-hmm. just make a shit ton of connections. Good. And build relationships and leverage as much resources and, um, you know, divert them to community. And then, um, yeah, I told them, like, uh, the first week, they're like, are you going to stay with the job until, like, the campaign is over? And I was like, you know, unless somebody gives me an organization um, for women of color and queer folks of color, then, yeah, I'll probably just stay here. And they were like, would that happen? And I was like, no, I'm, like, only <laughs> 25. I doubt somebody's going to trust me with a full-on organization. Um, but then it did happen, like, two, two years later. I was like, uh, so, you know that joke that I told you about? Uh, I'm leaving to go work at Search Reproductive Fuck Justice. Yeah. That's um, so that was pretty wild. But I built, yeah, a lot of relationships and w- had the privilege to be mentored by, um, you know, some really great folks who have done wonderful organizing like KL Shannon, um, Velma Valoria, um, Ayan Nuse, and other folks, other elders in the community who... Um, really worked with me to um make sure that the analysis that i had that i was working on how to build that in my community as well mm-hmm. so oh sorry well i'm just before we move on to surge i wanted was curious if you wanted to talk more about like lessons learned from being part of all in for washington and like what that process was Ooh. like and if you also know like what the status is because the last i heard it was just kind of dead in the water yeah yeah so it was wild because what i thought was going to be impossible to bring communities of color to the table to work on tax reform um i was able to build relationships in the community where we did so we had elders like um juan jose boca negra who came to the do the work um velma valoria um Tony from A Pace um, and other folks who I was able to like really connect with them to think about what does it look like to build power and education and understanding in our communities um, about taxes and tax reform and really how it's both a conversation of racial justice and economic justice. And so um, working with those elders, we crafted this organizing plan that was going to be so beautiful, that was really about building education and power and um, the campaign I think they saw just how much power could have been created through that work and they completely shot that idea down. And then it was all about like how do we get, you know, our communities to do this work basically like for free or for pennies and then upset because communities didn't want to do that. And so it was just really frustrating. I think that was kind of when I was at the point where I was wanted to make a pivot in my organizing that it was no more of being a bridge um especially being that individual who had to be the bridge between community and these white-led organizations um but also um thinking about how do i take these 
take the work that I was doing and build our own structures and do work that was focused on that. Um, yeah, building in our community first. So Jackie, I am remembering where I first met you. Um, you would always show up to protest in like these fly ass outfits. Like I will never forget you had velvet boots on. And I forgot what action we were at, but I was like, this girl is really out here in velvet boots. We're out here marching for hours. Um, so like, how did you get involved with grassroots organizing? Because then I started seeing you everywhere, like mm-hmm. at all the epic stuff, at all the YUAR stuff. So, you know, like, what was that transition like for you? Yeah. So like I said, when I took that job, I was just all about like, oh, how am I going to like actually build relationships in the community and support the work that was already happening? happening. And so pretty much mm, three quarters of my time I had on my calendar I was doing stuff at other places and they'd be like well are you talking to them about taxes and I'd be like good god no I'm (laughs) building relationships I'm using this institutional resource and support Mm -hmm. and leverage to work with what community is already doing and that was one thing that oh my weekly check-ins were always like who did you talk to? I talked to all these great people and I'm learning about what they're doing, but did you talk to them about taxes? No, no, I did not. I talked to them to figure out what they're working on in the community and to see how we can support and show up and use my staff time. And then they'd be like, well, could you talk about taxes a little bit? <laughs> oh my Jesus And Christ. be like, good God, like, are you kidding me? Um, so yeah, that's why you would see me everywhere because I really was trying to build relationships. And I, I know at one point with youth undoing institutional racism, they were having their freedom school week, and that's a you know like nine to five Monday through Friday, and they were like, "Damn, you have to go to work." And I was like, "Oh no, I blocked this off on my calendar, and I am counting this as." work hours um so you know i definitely had to deal with like shit about that about what i was quote unquote doing with my time but um i don't regret it it was how i was able to build those relationships and really be in community um and see the work that had been happening and that's how i got connected to like um the people's institute network and the village of hope and that amazing anti-racist organizing that's been going on here in the seattle area so yeah. How is that balance between um, nonprofit work and the activism work on the ground? And I just feel like as the more you get into what's happening on the real, real grassroots level, it kind of makes you know your individual work you have to complete in the nonprofit world a little more complicated. Oh, definitely. Because when you show up to the office, it just all feels like bullshit. <laughs> and it's just so frustrating that this is where the money, the resources, and attention is. And the credit. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Exactly. And it's just like, and they really be thinking that they're doing the real work. <laughs> and it's like, what? Like, you think this grant is the real work? It would just be so frustrating to see the pats on the back, um, the resources just getting passed back and forth from, to organization, to back and forth, and like no work actually happening, no real results or impact in the community, and then just no accountability whatsoever. Mm-hmm. And the cognitive dissonance that would happen every day around what they say they're doing versus what they're actually doing. Mm-hmm. 
Biden and not understanding why they needed to give up power and why they shouldn't have had it in the first place. You're talking specifically about the nonprofits. Oh, yes. Mm -hmm. And the white folks who were running them. Mm -hmm. So taxes are mad confusing. Mm-hmm. So, like, when you first transitioned into doing that kind of work, like, was there a learning curve for you on, like, how, on, like, untangling that whole web? Because, like, I feel like to be able to even talk about it to community members, you got to digest it yourself. Mm-hmm. And that, I mean, imagining for me, that would have taken me a year. Mm-hmm. Years, the plural. Mm-hmm. Oh, yes. It was very interesting to have to teach myself taxes and tax reform. Um, My major in college was race and culture studies. So, uh, yeah, it was uh, it was definitely a learning curve. But I remember like some of the folks that I worked with, like specifically thinking about Velma Valoria and how she took me exactly exactly the first time i ever met her she went off on me about how we were doing the all-in for washington campaign and i was like ah (laughs) like i'm here to like support the work of community and then i think she saw that i really was i really meant that and she caught that glimmer in me and so she took me to the filipino community center to speak with um miss emma who runs yeah yes auntie emma and um velma sat me down and she was like tell emma about tax reform and what you're trying to do and so you know i used the talking points that they had and then emma looked at me and then she was like no no one's going to understand that here you go out there into like the main auditorium and they're none of them are gonna understand that and both of them were like going off on me that like if i couldn't explain it to the community then it was garbage and it was inaccessible and that i needed to figure out how i was going to connect it to what was happening in our community's lives because this is not something that we think about and so we had to make it relevant and so they worked with me they worked with me um another elder ayan she worked with me as well ayan yeah ayan she would be like (laughs) yes i I know you're not listening but don't kill me (laughs) yeah one of the things i always feel so proud to say is that Ayana's never gone off with me, off off on me, and ever she's never gotten <laughs> mad at me about my organizing work or like called me out about it. So you, I'm no like, one can go off on you. <laughs> oh my god! I can't imagine that. No, it's. Uh, I feel like that is a testament because Ayan will call you out in a minute and Yo, for good reason. For folks who don't know Auntie Ayan, she is a brilliant elder. Yes, but she is the realest of the real. <laughs> oh, <laughs> she yes. will see through your shit so quickly. Uh, yes. She's don't clapped in my face on multiple occasions. <laughs> I don't try. But her. but she loves me though definitely she does it from a place of love (laughs) but um yeah they were just they hammered that into me if you cannot explain it to our communities then none of it means anything Mm -hmm. and so i would just think about it i would talk to other people see how they reacted and then just kept on like i don't know massaging and massaging it to like i could speak about it in my community and people understood Mm -hmm. and they could make the connections and then think about what they wanted to see differently And because of that, we were able to create the Working Families Tax Credit that while I don't know if it will pass in our legislature because people are weak, (laughs) but that policy, if you run the numbers on it, over 60% of the people who would benefit from the Working Families Tax Credit are communities of color. And that's because we built it with communities that... 
So basically, it would be our state's version of the earned income tax, the earned income tax credit at the federal level. So families that would qualify, you would basically get two checks, one from the federal government and one from the state. And basically, it would be a way to address the fact that the poorest in our state pay the greatest share mm-hmm. of their income in state and local taxes and it would be almost like giving them a refund mm-hmm. of the taxes that they spent because it doesn't make sense to give everybody a tax cut by lowering our sales tax because then rich people get a mm-hmm. tax break too and they don't need that when mm-hmm. they go and buy things we need them to keep buying things and like paying that high ass sales tax mm-hmm. we don't need our communities to be paying it and the working families tax credit would almost be like giving you your money back mm-hmm. and what you spent in the sales tax it was really interesting it's a really interesting concept a lot of it has to do about redistribution of wealth if you really think about taxes um and so anyways yeah that policy was made with community members and with a policy person who would explain things to people and then fix it based off of what they said so they didn't have to be like experts about tax policy but they were experts on what they wanted to see happen in their community so yes <laughs> do, you, do you think this upcoming well current but really upcoming battle to tax corporate greed to tax the rich is becoming more and more accessible then honestly from my opinion no i think that sure the environment might be more ripe than it was a couple years ago when city council tried it but there has not been the groundwork in our community to teach our community about taxes and what this means for them and the opposition they're always going to use that message that oh once they tax us they're going to come for you but if we could truly show people how wealth is not taxed but income is and guess who like income disproportionately impacts it's low income folks in our communities Mm -hmm. and so if you don't if you can't teach that to the community then they're not going to understand how to work through the opposition's like false narrative and i don't see that education happening and right i mean like the fight for 15 obviously there was a scare tactic Mm -hmm. of this will take away jobs Mm -hmm. um but i also feel like oh yeah the scare tactic this time around is pretty similar um, small businesses, etc. Mm-hmm. At the same time, I think our environment, like you said, it's still pretty um, resistant to the the word tax, and mm-hmm. and so yeah, I'm not sure if the same type of message campaign can work this time around. I hope it does. Yeah, um, yeah, I think there has to be that education at the grassroots level and really connecting it to the issues that communities are working on because we're not going to just like drop everything and start mobilizing for tax reform. But if you can connect it to the issues that we already care about and are working on, then you could use that as a tool to educate or a vehicle, I guess. This is like an open question, but like, is there a... Uh like a easy way to connect like tax reform and all of that work with prison abolition i mean i'm sure there is but like off the top of my head i don't know what it is Mm -hmm. definitely i mean if you think about like what did our tax dollars fund that work 
and that if we if there you would have to think about taxes as both how the revenue is collected and then how the decisions are made on how the revenue is invested Mm -hmm. and that was one of the things that we tried to push on the campaign when i was there that like sure if you're going to have these conversations about like oh we're going to like collect revenue or taxes in a better way so that we have more money for things it's like well great i don't want you funneling that money back into the broken education system mm-hmm. that is like funneling the school to prison pipeline you know yeah. or these prisons that are caging up people in our communities in black mm-hmm. and brown communities or giving it to hospitals that are killing black mothers and children you know Ooh, i want you to invest those dollars back into the community on community led projects and organizations so it's both a question or both a conversation on how the revenue is collected and then how it is um um spent. put spent yes spent in our community where's all that pension money gone anyway with with the the prison remember that was a breaking news that um the that city pensions were invested in the prison industrial complex what wow yeah, yeah. Guy, guy oran broke that story oh really oh, shit. yeah it was crazy wow uh well shit <laughs> oh it was a city uh i think so i will be speaking to a manager speaking of um hmm. economic justice though mm-hmm. and then transitioning to your work at surge i was looking at the website and i was reading your staff bio and i really love how you just straight up called out the fact that you don't fuck with nonprofits either <laughs> <laughs> and like i appreciate that like what you were talking about early is identifying what lane you're in mm-hmm. and just being accountable and like really transparent to that and how like a lot of people who work for nonprofits think they're on the front lines doing the work <laughs> when in yes. actuality like they're not putting their bodies on the line and and, like exactly. it's very different and so i was thinking about like how difficult it would be to be the executive director of an organization knowing knowing that like knowing yes. both grassroots and also knowing nonprofit work and how you have to fund your organization and yes. um navigate the bureaucracy and the politics of that and i'm just so curious like how you do invest your efforts like in in both like maintaining your connection in the lane in the lane that you occupy as an activist and then also in the lane that you mm-hmm. occupy as an ED. Yeah, definitely. So also I feel shown to be an ED. Mm-hmm. You boss ass bitch. Thank you. And bouncing a baby on the Yeah. basically doing crunches right now while bouncing her baby. Oh my goodness. So I feel incredibly um, lucky to have a board that is so supportive of my ideas and my plans and my approach and really understanding that all of our work plans at Surge go through an anti-racist strategy chart. So for those of you who've used the undoing institutional racism strategy chart, like you know that that is a process. It is takes. (laughs) Exactly. And that is what our work plans go through because I understand we are part of the nonprofit industrial complex Mm -hmm. like I can call it out out as much as I want to but if I'm not doing that for surge Mm -hmm. then I'm being a hypocrite Mm -hmm. and I know good god my poor partner he probably just feels terrorized thinking about this because I always be like asking him he's an organizer as well like well what do you think about this like am I being accountable like am I building the relationships with the people that are impacted like is surge causing more harm but like actively 
asking myself those questions and um, the staff at Surge and the board mm-hmm. and being like having very frank conversations that we too are a part of the problem. We too can and do cause harm. Mm-hmm. But if we're not asking ourselves how we're doing that and recognizing that, then we are a part of the problem. Mm-hmm. So yes, we are a nonprofit. Yes, we have to apply for grants and get funding, um, but we're very choosy about where we get our funding from and what we're writing in our grants. And pretty much every grant that I have, there are big components of it, of how that money is going back into the community. And so whether that be stipends for individuals been having a lot of conversations with the organization people of color sex worker outreach project yeah mm-hmm. shout out mm-hmm. to Sheree. yes huge mm-hmm. shout out to pock swap and green light project and the work they're doing around um sex work and breaking down those stigmas and anyways so we've talked a lot about how i feel like in organizing or at least in nonprofits, they'll be like, you can't pay people to like participate and organize, but it's like, well, we get paid as organizers. Exactly. Like we make money off of this. Exactly. Like you couldn't possibly give people a stipend to come to a meeting or come to a community listening session. Or feed them. Uh, yeah, <laughs> exactly. And I'm like, no, like our organizing is inaccessible. That's mm-hmm. why all of these organizations are organizing other organizers or people who have the privilege and space to be able to come to a meeting after working all day it's like okay yeah like they probably counted as work as well you know and so we've talked a lot about what does it look like to support people who are directly impacted by these issues to be able to participate in organizing Mm because right now it's inaccessible and folks can't participate like that's not even an option when they're trying to figure out how to pay their rent or put food on the table Mm -hmm. and if there's a way that we can mitigate some of that so that their voice actually can be there and we can figure out what accountability looks like because there is probably the realistic like it's real that like they're not going to be able maybe to do everything if they can't afford to like be a part and go to these meetings because like people are losing money going right, to meetings right, right. and for a lot of us who are organizers that's not, it's not an option. like oh okay yeah. sure we might be a little bit tired mm-hmm. or we didn't get a weekend but we're not gonna like not be able to pay our rent because we yeah. went to mm-hmm. a community meeting you know right. and so recognizing that and redirecting resources yeah absolutely so you've in your work at surge you've been working with mothers longer than you've been a mother and you just became a mother 10 months ago and I'm curious like how that process has changed your approach to the work and Mm -hmm. has how it's just changed your life Mm -hmm. definitely yeah so let's see the work around access to doulas for folks that are incarcerated Mm -hmm. that happened before I came to surge Um, So Surge was a part of efforts back in 2018 to pass legislation that would um, make it so that Department of Corrections has to reasonably accommodate 
doula services and midwifery services for people who are pregnant while incarcerated. We used to have a prison doula program here in Washington back in like the early 2000s, um, but it ended up getting shut down um, because the prison felt like they were doing too much advocacy and activism. And um, there were a lot of folks that were queer and trans um, who were a part of that um, work. And the prison was just, you know, completely homophobic and transphobic and kicked kicked them out because of that. And so um, folks, you know, went back to create legislation so that the prison couldn't just, like, kick them out with, like, you know, based off a whim. And when that, after that bill passed, then um, the board members at Surge were like, let's try to create a prison doula program. And when I came on board to Surge and later that year in 2018, I had never heard of doulas before. I didn't know what a doula was. I thought a doula was like a midwife. <laughs> Can you explain the difference? Yeah, exactly, exactly. Yes, I love when folks ask that question. So a doula is somebody that gives spiritual, um, emotional, um, spiritual, emotional, and physical support to those um, who are pregnant, especially during the labor, mm -hmm. and really being there consistently, because mm -hmm. like when you're in labor, like doctors and nurses are coming in and out, and they're not really telling you, they're just mm -hmm. like, you know, checking heart rates and stuff like that. But your doula is going to be with you the whole time. Mm. And there's so much. Um, like the whole time? Yes. Oh, wow. Pretty much. Yeah. Cool. Like the whole time. And labor can be anywhere from like a day to like three days. You know, <laughs> three like days. they'll go home, you know, at some point. Yeah. But like they try to be there as much as possible. And there's so much data around like somebody being there consistently mm -hmm. with you during your labor that reduces so many of the like, um, you know, adverse outcomes that are out there around unplanned C-sections mm -hmm. and things like that. And so anyways, the board, they wanted to um, actually start a prison doula program. And me with like the organizers hat, I was like, ooh, like how is this not just a service, but actually something around organizing and building power. Mm -hmm. And so I did the strategy chart on like <laughs> thinking about what a program like this could look like. And really I came back to the idea that like we have to figure out how we're organizing and building with folks inside. And that like this doula, would be like kind of like a vehicle to be able to do that and so Ooh, like a secret spy doula basically basically <laughs> yeah, yeah. like a bunch of doulas and like black turtlenecks like walking into the doc <laughs> you infiltrated the so system with doulas that's pretty cool. Exactly. And so, um, yeah, and it was interesting because after I did the strategy chart, then I read about a prison doula program on the East Coast that was rooted in a reproductive justice framework. So they were all about how are we providing the service, but also organizing mm -hmm. as well. Because like everything that you could imagine about prisons and how they treat people is happening to people who are pregnant. Wow. and their babies and people being underfed um, you know depression and mental health um, lack of resources lack of prenatal care um, just like the uh, treatment from the officers all of that um, the stories that I've heard from other prison doula programs across the country like I was pregnant at the time 
And of course, you know, I was emotional, but just thinking about everything that I needed and how my body was changing mm-hmm. and all the things that were happening. And I couldn't imagine being in that setting and being dehumanized how we know people are in prisons mm-hmm. and going through that while you're pregnant and then that impacting your baby as well. And so um, I was like, we have to figure out how we're organizing around this. And then luckily got connected with folks that were um, organizing a black prisoners caucus chapter at our women's prison. And so this summer I became a sponsor for that group. And it has really just opened my eyes to what organizing in prison really means. Mm -hmm. And um, what does it mean? Yeah, can you talk about that? Just like really getting shut down in every turn like we think Mm. about okay you can put together a strategy chart and like think through a campaign and like plan your strategy and whatnot but when you're just like completely like shut down shut down by doc yeah Mm. it is really like wow okay so we have to rethink this again Mm. and just um what like what are the what does doc like what's their reasoning for like not allowing stuff like they have to say no for a reason right no what (laughs) no that's what Mm. we're learning Mm. i'm like one of the things that i'm saying i'm like the quickest thing that they do is create new policies those Mm. fuckers yeah it's really interesting it's just an internal process too it's not yeah anything that's legislated yeah so there's actually so there was recently an ombuds office created for doc Mm -hmm. and they released a report this november and it really highlights some pretty interesting things so this is the ombuds like for people who are incarcerated to like have a vehicle to Mm -hmm. file complaints against Mm doc and it's new um yeah i believe it was created in 2018 or something like that um but yeah it's there i think one of the things that they highlighted was that there is no like outside oversight mechanism that is so scary and so yeah things around healthcare, food Mm -hmm. quality um and mental health are really big issues that were brought up in the report Mm. What, what i'm thinking of too is like does the mother get any support in understanding what when she'll be able to spend time with her baby after she gives birth and like how to advocate for herself and the needs of her body and her baby being together and like what is the process of that like does are are the mothers separated from their babies immediately after birth so not here in washington they get 24 hours i believe that's it yeah that's like immediately yeah, yeah and that, it, that counts it, right, as immediately exactly. yeah. no, no definitely so definitely and i think if you've like, compared s- to what in other states that's insane it compared to not holding like, or seeing your baby at oh all. my god wow. are you kidding yeah yeah and um yeah i believe it was just recently until like 2013 that we stopped shackling during birth but there are other places that still shackle um like while the mother's in labor yeah oh my god yep so um can't even make a joke about it no no there's like there's no words for it um i think about my 23 and a half our labor with this little one and how much i had to walk around because mm-hmm. i did it natural and um mm-hmm. yeah i had to walk through the contractions or do stretches <laughs> um and i couldn't imagine having to lay there and not be able to like move my body in a way mm-hmm. to like help facilitate the labor 
So do women give birth within the prisons or are they at least taken to a hospital? Yeah, they're taken to St. Joe's in Tacoma. All of them? Like, mm-hmm. does it... Like, what about ones who are, like, in Monroe or, like... No, there's only... There's two prisons where women are at, um, but one of them, I believe, okay. is a work camp, and that's Mission um, Creek. Okay. So people who are pregnant wouldn't go there. Mm. But folks that are pregnant... Um, are generally at WCCW. Okay. And that's there in Gig Harbor. What about youth? Mm-hmm. That's a good question. Like, are pregnant youth in the, the women's prison too, the adult prison? or? You know, I'm not sure about that. I know that there is, like, the juvenile privilege, and I forget what it's called. Something green or something like that. Mm-hmm. I forget. Mm. it's escaping me right now but i hadn't even thought about that day Mm -hmm. that about what about the pregnant youth where are we with youth detention in seattle because i know this battle has been going on for a while and aretha jackie and a lot of activists have been pushing to end youth detention here Mm -hmm. um and also with the news this past year with um california making strides towards ending youth detention Mm-hmm. Um, through activists like Patrice Colors and people like that. Um, do we have like a pretty up to date? And th- it's supposed to open, right? Next the week? The 18th. Or yeah. two weeks from now? Yeah. So the youth jail will be opening up on the 18th. Yeah, when I think about reproductive justice in the youth jail, like I think about the organizing work that black women mm-hmm. have been doing around this um, as black women did um, you know, are the founders of reproductive justice. And people often think that reproductive justice is just about abortion rights, right. but it's not. It's about the ability to make decisions over your body and your reproductive choices. And that means the choices to either have a child or not have a child, or if you do have a child, have that child in a safe mm-hmm. and sustainable mm-hmm. environment. Mm-hmm. And when I think about caging children like no parent wants to have a kid and then for that kid to be funneled through the school to prison pipeline and then end up in a cage and that is a reproductive justice issue that black families brown families like our children are being disproportionately put in jails Mm. and i even think about imani because i'm almost five foot eight and Imani's dad is about six three and Imani is over 100 percentile in her height and so I know she's going to be tall for her age always and I think about when she's going to be in like an elementary and middle school and that she's going to look older because Mm -hmm. she's taller Mm -hmm. and then therefore expected to act Mm -hmm. like older like oh why are you acting like that it's like well she's only six Mm -hmm. and i think about you know just the stereotypes for black women anyways and how that's also put on our children and like what's going to happen to my baby girl Mm -hmm. you know when she's going through school like she's going to be targeted by teachers because she happens to be tall right you know like i can't stop her from being tall i can't stop her from being black Right, And so now me and her father have to figure out, okay, what does the education look like? And it's like, as a parent, like that's reproductive justice because I shouldn't have to like think about how am I going to teach my child to navigate the school system so that they don't end up 
in the school to prison pipeline all because she's black and tall. Right. Yeah. One of the other big things that we're working on at Surge is black maternal health. And so that's how we got um, connected to the work around Medicaid reimbursements for doulas because right now we are facing a crisis in our country where black birthing parents are dying at high rates or having unnecessary medical interventions like the u.s has the lowest maternal health statistics out of any developed country because of the statistics for black maternal health and so washington state is no different and it's black maternal health and indigenous maternal health as well um and so the thing about it is is it's medical racism it's racism in society stress being a trigger it's all the different systems impacting black pregnant and birthing people and their families and that is why we have these maternal health disparities and so what we're working on at surge is to pass a medicaid reimbursement policy for doulas because doulas if you do not have the means to pay for one, they can be very, very expensive. And if you don't have the means, then you're lucky enough to get a part of a program that pays for one. But other than that, there's a lot of doulas, especially in communities of color, who are doing this work for free, which is unsustainable and not okay as well. So basically, we have this resource that we know can reduce unplanned C-sections, preterm births, and low birth weight, low, low birth weight. Uh, low weight birth babies sorry but that resource is inaccessible because of this capitalistic structure that we live in and so if we were to have medicaid reimbursements we could make doulas accessible to our communities and so what surge is working on is to support doulas especially doulas of color to organize and get a strong policy in washington and what we want to do is then go out in our communities and educate people about this new resource both people who want to be doulas or people who want a doula because for us we're kind of using the organizing philosophy that our community is not going to come out to a reproductive justice 101 workshop like we don't have the time we don't have the resources but our community will come out to learn about a new resource and figure out how they can get connected to it and so we can partner with doulas to do that outreach and then educate people about the black maternal health statistics and why doulas are a resource to addressing that we're going to get people who are like okay but why are these numbers so bad and we want to organize with folks that want to address that because like we know not everybody that would come to like the workshop or you know the community get together to learn about doulas is going to want to organize but there are going to be people who are going to be like hmm that's interesting we need to address that and fix that and so surge would partner with the organizing so we want to support doulas of color in passing and creating a strong medicaid reimbursement policy for doulas and then use that as a way to educate our communities and to build power and to address these more like holistic things around black maternal health um, I have like two more questions about prison abolition. Yes. And then we can wrap. Yes. Okay. Um, I think when we talk about prison abolition, like it gets really woo woo, like lofty. People are like, what the fuck? Like, uh-huh. you gonna get rid of all the prisons? What does that What does that even mean? Uh-huh. Um, so I think for like, if we were to start a class like prison abolition one hundred and one, like mm-hmm. for you in the work that you do. 
um, can you, I guess, like define abolition for you or like what it means? Just like if we're really introducing people into this work, like mm-hmm. what would you be telling them? Yeah. So I remember actually when I moved over here and learned about the organizing that was happening with Epic and No New Gel campaign, I was like, okay, I'm an abolitionist. Like, mm-hmm. yes, of course. Um, but what does that mean? And so I remember um, buying Angela Davis's book, mm-hmm. um, Abolition Democracy. Mm-hmm. And I was like, yes, that like all of our institutions were built on racism and oppression. Mm-hmm. And became vehicles for that. And they were built to serve white folks. So, of course, we should take them all down and start over and build institutions that work for all of us and actually serve our communities. And I think that was like the gist of her book. And so, like, when people think about, like, oh, you're just gonna tear down the prisons and like let everyone just like roam the streets, it's like, well people are going to do bad things but there are other ways that we can address that if we all work together to create what that looks like and not just like creating a different type of looking prison but like truly like creating it together that like if that was someone in your family that did something how would you react to them and treat them and like what would you build for them? What help and support would you get for them? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's beautiful. Mm-hmm. Can I ask a weird, maybe dumb question, perhaps? Mm-hmm. As a prison abolitionist, just people who b- believe in, you know, prison shouldn't be a thing in general. You know, mm-hmm. I think um, there's a lot of complications and nuance in talking about, like, I, I would consider myself one as well. At the same time, I also catch myself wanting that type of uh, consequence and punishment for people that I believe um, needs to face justice themselves. For example, police mm-hmm. who murder, mm-hmm. you know, um, sexual abusers, etc. Mm-hmm. Um, how do you how do you wrestle with that nuance as yeah. prison abolitionists while also wanting justice? for our communities, um, especially holding those with power accountable. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And that's a good question. <laughs> um, I think that that's something that comes up a lot. And for me, I feel like it comes back to just having to challenge ourselves to think about things differently. And to understand like how we've all been socialized to these oppressive and racist systems and structures. How we've been socialized really impacts the way we want to create solutions. And that we just really have to constantly challenge ourselves to think differently than like how we've been told to think all of our lives. So uh, maybe that's not a direct answer to your question. No, that makes sense. I think it's complicated. It's it's the reality we. It's the option we have right now. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you can you can only think with what you have, right? So we need to have a vision of what it looks like. Exactly. And once we have that vision, then we can start thinking in those terms. Exactly. I think what I also like, especially as a a woman, like I always my automatic fear is like, well, what about the rapists? Like, what the fuck are we gonna do about rapists? Right. 
because I definitely find myself like you know like when I'm walking down the street like I'm skeptical of everything and everyone because you know women just face so much violence on at every fucking turn mm-hmm. and so when I when I was a baby abolitionist mm-hmm. I think what really helped me understand the concept was like making it digestible right like what we know is that vast majority of the people within our prison system are not in there for like heinous crimes right like Mm -hmm. so Mm -hmm. many people are actually in these jails for poverty for just like exactly all of the things that that are built up so that people have to do shit to survive and i think for me what prison abolition like really brought me into prison abolition was understanding that that is what that is our starting point right like there are so many people in our prison system that should not be there that are still there and that while we work on that that itself is going to take us fucking 50 years you know and so i think as we figure out what to do with like that block of people it'll teach us and help us figure out like what to do with the people that you know like we we are like afraid of like how do we sure. how do we grapple with that i think that i think that i would like call myself a baby abolitionist because i believe in abolition but like i also don't think my analysis is as evolved and like a really good um example of that in my life was that like i knew somebody who i like trusted and then i found out that that person was like um sexually had been sexually assaulting and raping women and like drugging women and it really shook me to the core and like my initial reaction when like kind of like put in the trauma of that experience was like I hope he gets caught and I hope he gets locked up or I'm not gonna feel safe because he knows where I live and I was like fuck this really goes against like all of what I feel like I value because my initial gut reaction was like to definitely go against that but then I was thinking too like what the hell does restorative justice look like too and like how do we go through processes like that and like what are processes that like I would want if and honestly like feel safe to access because those have never really been presented to me so like what are some of the like ways that restorative justice is being done in our city right now and like who's leading that work yeah I also think about um how it's not just about the prison system that it's all these different systems when i think about you know rape culture and the way that capitalism and racism have really from like thinking about during slavery and black women under the slave system how rape culture was really defined through those two systems so when we think about those type of crimes that were like well those are the ones you know that are probably the line for me but also thinking about all the other systems that are at play so it wouldn't just be about prison abolition but it'd be about abolition of all these different systems and institutions um and addressing that like you know really getting to the root causes how Mm -hmm. you know people say because mm-hmm. maybe if we address that then that wouldn't be a crime that like we have to be like oh on the fence about mm-hmm. can we can we switch it up a little bit and play a game we play every week with you <laughs> oh my God. aretha's favorite game chrissy's second favorite game no it's what? my favorite oh, zaddy daddy father <laughs> oh Lord. has aretha has prepped you no no, but somebody did give me a heads up when I told them what I was doing tonight. And I was like, no, I don't think they'll ask me that question. And they were like, mm, 
You should be prepared. Yes, the reputation. <laughs> We're thoughts. We're thoughts. We're political thoughts. All right. Well, since you were mildly prepped, I won't go into too much detail, but we're going to give you three names and you're going to categorize them as either zaddy, daddy, or father. Oh, Lord. And you are a hip activist <laughs> who knows all the famous please, activist please, please, speeches please, and probably knows some Drake lyrics, so you know what a zaddy is. <laughs> <laughs> That's that's a yes. That's a yes. If you were to guess, you would be like, yeah, I could define Zaddy. Yeah. Yeah. Oh my God. Yeah, you can. Can I define Zaddy? Um, I don't know if I can to define it versus like. I don't know when you say it's like zaddy. Like, yeah. <laughs> yeah. See, that's the thing. These the words. Is, but it's like zaddy. I don't know. Put a little shoulder oh, shrug. Oh, you're okay. She said only my daddy is zaddy. Oh, yep, yep, yep. <laughs> <laughs> Mommy's like, do not play this game. Can I, can can I please give the name? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> okay, so in honor of recent pop culture news of hearing that Rihanna might be dating. Oh, boy. Ooh. Drum roll, please. Mm-hmm. Oh my god. Yeah, I didn't hear this. He's in the mob. He's in the mob. Oh, ASAP Rocky. <gasps> oh, really? Oh, oh yeah. Way. Oh, yeah. This I have is a whole, my dream couple. I have a whole analysis okay, but, on but this. But ASAP Rocky is like not down with Black Lives Matter. Oh. He he oh, had no. like the OJ, like I'm not black, I'm OJ analysis. And, he like, basically <sighs> said, I'm not black, I'm ASAP. Yeah. Mm-hmm. No. So, but, but my oh. god, his face. <laughs> perfect oh. so so <laughs> there's that anything. and he's a fashion icon so rihanna is dating asap okay okay so let's like take this back step because she also dated drake and okay. day and i've been arguing Ooh. over if that was a step up or a step down okay, i'm not okay. gonna say which side we're on until you answer and then to keep it in like Do we have that argument we've had this conversation multiple times you said argument you said conversation I said argument first. Okay, okay, okay. okay. <laughs> I was like, and... <laughs> <laughs> Damn. Oh, Ring okay, okay, okay. So wait, it's ASAP okay, Rocky. It's ASAP Rocky. Okay. It's Drake. <laughs> okay. And and because ASAP Rocky also dated Kendall Jenner, yeah. I'm gonna, he did. Oh boy, he did. I'm uh. going to throw in Travis Scott <gasps> because he also obviously is Kylie's baby daddy and because Kim probably fucked Drake. So... There we go. That's my pop culture. You can't for just you. throw that in there. I'm throwing it in you there. It's no my evidence. podcast. I get to say what I want. So the oh three Lord. people are ASAP, Rocky, Drake, and James. Travis Scott. Oh my god. Oh, that's hard. I was googling these people right now. <laughs> <laughs> and she goes, "Wow, this guy's fine." <laughs> That's interesting. I usually, I don't know, I usually have some type of feeling about black men that date white women. Um, so maybe I'll have to remove that because then they'd all three be out. It's a lot of celebs, <laughs> yeah. unfortunately. Uh, yeah, that would make the list really small because it's like, oh, okay. What about your mother who's black? But anyways, that's probably a whole nother podcast. Who, zaddy, daddy, or father? Fun. Okay. Who's a lamo? I'm gonna have to put Travis Scott there. Mm. As zaddy? No, as father. Ooh, sorry. Ooh, yeah. yeah. Sorry. Mm-hmm. Astro world. As father. yeah, I don't really mm-hmm. like his music. I don't know. 
That's fair. That's not for me. You don't so, think? He, yeah. Okay. Yeah. So he's definitely father. Okay. Now, Zaddy and Daddy. Kylie alone is a very disqualifying factor. Oh, yeah. Oh, it's from Houston. Yeah, that's even though like they all are, but the amount of I don't know, they've all have made so much money off of black women oh, and yeah. black mm-hmm. culture, but Kylie has made a billion, so yeah. maybe she's the worst. <laughs> she's made the billion. <laughs> the worst. We've quantified it. <laughs> yeah, so um hmm. Okay, Zaddy and Daddy, Drake, ASAP. Uh, hmm. I'm gonna put ASAP as Zaddy. Mm-hmm. Okay. I'm gonna do Drake as Daddy. I, I agree with that. Yeah, me too. Now that I've looked at their faces. I don't. I don't. I I am not up with some pop culture. Okay. <laughs> but I that, agree that with was, your assessment. That was a good three. Yeah. See, my my mind is always like when I try to pick these people, they have to be like they have to look like give me like father energy Mm. and i feel like those are hard because like none of them really give me father vibes which is it could be problematic to say but i'm talking about like older like out like (laughs) where would you classify like obama both zaddy and daddy (laughs) (laughs) yeah he took up two slots yeah so uh, like 2008 obama's daddy and and no 2008 obama was zaddy okay okay Mm -hmm. that Mm -hmm. one picture i think you don't like salt and pepper no that's daddy like you know it's definitely daddy um but yeah the, i'll never forget that picture of him stepping out of like some type of black car and he was like in a black suit i think and it might have been on the cover of ebony or something like that and i was like good god <laughs> <laughs> my god that's got to be our president I'm like oh no remember that <laughs> <laughs> remember that picture of him water skiing like right after he left office oh, oh my god <laughs> That was actually a really hot photo, too. Jackie, you are fucking brilliant. Mm-hmm. <laughs> thank you for all that you do. Oh for real, for real. And thank you for bringing Imani Aww. to our yes. yes. We're happy thank to be love. here. With that, thank you, listeners, for tuning in to another Activist Class episode. Please like and subscribe and leave a nice comment. And five stars. And follow us on Instagram, too. Because Aretha is taking over the Instagram. I'm taking over the Instagram. <laughs> it's going to be fun.